This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Miller, Canal Winchester, Ohio. Eighty Years and More by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Chapter 4 Life at Peterborough. The year with us was never considered complete without a visit to Peterborough, New York, the home of Garrett Smith. Though he was a reformer and was very radical in many of his ideas, yet being a man of broad sympathies, culture, wealth, and position, he drew around him many friends of the most conservative opinions. He was a man of fine presence, rare physical beauty, most affable and courteous in manner, and his hospitalities were generous to an extreme, and dispensed to all classes of society. Every year representatives from the Oneida tribe of Indians visited him. His father had early purchased of them large tracts of land, and there was a tradition among them that as an equivalent for the good bargains of the father, they had a right to the son's hospitality, with annual gifts of clothing and provisions. The slaves, too, had heard of Garrett Smith, the abolitionist, and of Peterborough as one of the safe points, and wrote for Canada. His mansion was, in fact, one of the stations on the Underground Railroad for slaves escaping from bondage. Hence they, too, felt they had a right to a place under his protecting roof. On such occasions the barn and the kitchen floor were utilized as chambers for the black man from the southern plantation, and the red man from his home in the forest. The spacious home was always enlivened with choice society from every part of the country. There one would meet members of the families of the old Dutch aristocracy, the Van Rensselaers, the Van Vechtens, the Schuylers, the Livingstons, the Bleekers, the Brickerhoffs, the Ten Eyck's, the Millers, the Seymours, the Cochrans, the Biddles, the Barclays, the Wendells, and many others. As the lady of the house, Anne Carol Fitzhugh, was the daughter of a wealthy slaveholder of Maryland, many agreeable Southerners were often among the guests. Our immediate family relatives were well represented by General John Cochran and his sisters, General Baird and his wife from West Point, the Fitzhughes from Oswego and Geneseo, the Bacchuses and Tallmans from Rochester, and the Swifts from Geneva. Here one was sure to meet scholars, philosophers, philanthropists, judges, bishops, clergymen, and statesmen. Judge Alfred Conkling, the father of Roscoe Conkling, was in his late years frequently seen at Peterborough. Tall and stately, after all life's troubled scenes, financial losses, and domestic sorrows, he used to say there was no spot on earth that seemed so like his idea of paradise. The proud, reserved judge was unaccustomed to manifestations of affection and tender interest in his behalf, and when Garrett, taking him by both hands, would in his softest tones say, Good morning, and inquire how he had slept and what he would like to do that day, and Nancy would greet him with equal warmth and pin a little bunch of roses in his buttonhole, I have seen the tears in his eyes. Their warm sympathies and sweet simplicity of manner melted the sternest natures, and made the most reserved amiable. There never was such an atmosphere of love and peace, of freedom and good cheer in any other home I visited, and this was the universal testimony of those who were guests at Peterborough. 
To go anywhere else, after a visit there, was like coming down from the divine heights into the valley of humiliation. How changed from the early days when, as strict Presbyterians, they believed in all the doctrines of Calvin. Then an indefinite gloom pervaded their home. Their consciences were diseased. They attached such undue importance to forms that they went through three kinds of baptism. At one time Nancy would read nothing but the Bible, sing nothing but hymns, and play only sacred music. She felt guilty if she talked on any subject except religion. She was, in all respects, a fitting mate for her attractive husband. G exquisitely refined in feeling and manner, beautiful in face and form, earnest and sincere, she sympathized with him in all his ideas of religion and reform. Together they passed through every stage of theological experience, from the uncertain ground of superstition and speculation to the solid foundation of science and reason. The position of the Church in the anti-slavery conflict, opening as it did all questions of ecclesiastical authority, Bible interpretation, and Church discipline, awakened them to new thought and broader views on religious subjects, and eventually emancipated them entirely from the old dogmas and formalities of their faith, and lifted them into the cheerful atmosphere in which they passed the remainder of their lives. Their only daughter, Elizabeth, added greatly to the attractions of the home circle, as she drew many young people round her. Beside her personal charm, she was the heiress of a vast estate and had many admirers. The favored one was Charles Dudley Miller of Utica, nephew of Mrs. Blandina Bleeker Dudley, founder of the Albany Observatory. At the close of his college life, Mr. Miller had not only mastered the languages, mathematics, rhetoric, and logic, but had learned the secret windings of the human heart. He understood the art of pleasing. These were the times when the anti-slavery question was up for hot discussion. In all the neighboring towns, conventions were held in which James G. Burney, a southern gentleman who had emancipated his slaves, Charles Stewart of Scotland, and George Thompson of England, Garrison, Phillips, May, Beriah Green, Foster, Abby Kelly, Lucretia Mott, Douglas, and others took part. Here, too, John Brown, Sanborn, Morton, and Frederick Douglass met to talk over that fatal movement on Harper's Ferry. On the question of temperance, also, the people were in a ferment. Dr. Cheever's pamphlet, Deacon Giles's distillery, was scattered far and wide, and as he was sued for libel, the question was discussed in the courts as well as at every fireside. Then came the Father Matthew and Washingtonian movements, and the position of the church on these questions intensified and embittered the conflict. This brought the Cheevers, the Pierponts, the Delavans, the Nortons, and their charming wives to Peterborough. It was with such company and varied discussions on every possible phase of political, religious, and social life that I spent weeks every year. Garrett Smith was cool and calm in debate, and as he was armed at all points on these subjects, he could afford to be patient and fair with an opponent, whether on the platform or at the fireside. These rousing arguments at Peterborough made social life seem tame and profitless elsewhere, and the youngest of us felt that the conclusions reached in this school of philosophy were not to be questioned. The sisters of General Cochrane, in disputes with their Dutch cousins in Schenectady and Albany, would end all controversy by saying, 
This question was fully discussed at Peterborough and settled. The youngsters frequently put the lessons of freedom and individual rights they heard so much of into practice, and relieved their brains from the constant strain of argument on first principles, by the wildest hilarity in dancing, all kinds of games and practical jokes carried beyond all bounds of propriety. These romps generally took place at Mr. Miller's. He used to say facetiously that they talked a good deal about liberty over the way, but he kept the goddess under his roof. One memorable occasion in which our enthusiasm was kept at white heat for two hours I must try to describe. The words cannot do it justice, as it was preeminently a spectacular performance. The imagination even cannot do justice to the limp, woe-begone appearance of the actors in the closing scene. These romps were conducted on a purely democratic basis, without regard to color, sex, or previous condition of servitude. It was rather a cold day in the month of March, when Cousin Charlie, as we called Mr. Miller, was superintending some men who were laying a plank walk in the rear of his premises. Some half-dozen of us were invited to an early tea at Good Deacon Huntington's. Immediately after dinner, Miss Fitzhugh and Miss Van Schaak decided to take a nap, that they might appear as brilliant as possible during the evening. That they might not be late, as they invariably were, Cousin Lizzie and I decided to rouse them in good season with a generous sprinkling of cold water. In vain they struggled to keep the blankets around them. With equal force we pulled them away, and whenever a stray finger or toe appeared we brought fresh batteries to bear until they saw that passive resistance must give place to active hostility. We were armed with two watering pots. They armed themselves with two large-sized syringes used for showering potato bugs. With these weapons they gave us chase downstairs. We ran into a closet and held the door shut. They quietly waited our forthcoming. As soon as we opened the door to peep out, Miss Fitzhugh, who was large and strong, pulled it wide open and showered us with a vengeance. Then they fled into a large pantry where stood several pans of milk. At this stage Cousin Charlie, hearing the rumpus, came to our assistance. He locked them in the pantry and returned to his work whereupon they opened the window and showered him with milk, while he, in turn, pelted them with wet clothes, soaking in tubs nearby. As they were thinly clad, wet to the skin, and the cold March wind blew out round them, we were all in fatigue costume in starting. They implored us to let them out, which we did, and, in return for our kindness, they gave us a broadside of milk in our faces. Cousin Lizzie and I fled to the dark closet, where they locked us in. After long, weary waiting, they came to offer us terms of capitulation. Lizzie agreed to fill their guns with milk, and give them our watering pots full of water. And I agreed to call Cousin Charlie under my window until they emptied the contents of guns and pots on his head. My room was on the first floor, and Miss Fitzhugh's immediately overhead. On these terms we accepted our freedom. Accordingly, I gently raised the window and called Charlie confidentially within whispering distance, when down came a shower of water. As he stepped back to look up and see whence it came, and who made the attack, a stream of milk hit him on the forehead. His heels struck a plank and he fell backward, to all appearance knocked down with a stream of milk. His humiliation was received with shouts of derisive laughter, and even the carpenters at work laid down their hammers and joined in the chorus. 
but his revenge was swift and capped the climax cold and wet as we all were and completely tired out we commenced to disrobe and get ready for the tea party unfortunately i had forgotten to lock my door and in walked cousin charlie with a quart bottle of liquid blacking which he prepared to empty on my devoted head i begged so eloquently and trembled so at the idea of being dyed black that he said he would let me off on one condition and that was to get him by some means into miss fitzhugh's room so i ran screaming up the stairs as if hotly pursued by the enemy and begged her to let me in she cautiously opened the door but when she saw charlie behind me she tried to force it shut however he was too quick for her he had one leg and arm in but at that stage of her toilette to let him in was impossible and there they stood equally strong firmly braced she on one side of the door and he on the other but the blacking he was determined she should have so gauging her probable position with one desperate effort he squeezed in a little farther and raising the bottle he poured the contents on her head the blacking went streaming down over her face white robe and person and left her looking more like a bronze fury than one of eve's most charming daughters a yard or more of the carpet was ruined the wallpaper and bedclothes spattered and the poor victim was unfit to be seen for a week at least charlie had a good excuse for his extreme measures for as we all by turn played our tricks on him it was necessary to keep us in some fear of punishment this was but one of the many outrageous pranks we perpetuated on each other to see us a few hours later all absorbed in an anti-slavery or temperance convention or dressed in our best in high discourse with the philosophers one would never think we could have been guilty of such consummate follies it was however but the natural reaction from the general serious trend of our thoughts it was in peterborough too that i first met one who was then considered the most eloquent and impassioned orator on the anti-slavery platform henry b stanton he had come over from Utica with Alvin Stewart's beautiful daughter, to whom report said he was engaged. But as she soon after married Luther R. Marsh, there was a mistake somewhere. However, the rumor had its advantages. Regarding him as not in the matrimonial market, we were all much more free and easy in our manners with him than we would otherwise have been. A series of anti-slavery conventions was being held in Madison County, and there I had the pleasure of hearing him for the first time. As I had a passion for oratory, I was deeply impressed with his power. He was not so smooth and eloquent as Phillips, but he could make his audience both laugh and cry. The latter, Phillips himself said he never could do. Mr. Stanton was then in his prime, a fine-looking, affable young man, with remarkable conversational talent, and was ten years my senior with the advantage that number of years necessarily gives two carriage loads of ladies and gentlemen drove off every morning sometimes ten miles to one of these conventions returning late at night i shall never forget those charming drives over the hills in madison county the bright autumnal days and the bewitching moonlight nights the enthusiasm of the people in these great meetings the thrilling oratory 
and lucid arguments of the speakers all conspired to make these days memorable as among the most charming in my life it seemed to me that i never had so much happiness crowded into one short month i had become interested in the anti-slavery and temperance questions and was deeply impressed with the appeals and arguments i felt a new inspiration in life and was enthused with new ideas of individual rights and the basic principles of government for the anti-slavery platform was the best school the american people ever had on which to learn republican principles and ethics these conventions and the discussions at my cousin's fireside i count among the great blessings of my life one morning as we came out from breakfast mr stanton joined me on the piazza where i was walking up and down enjoying the balmy air and the beauty of the foliage as we have no convention said he on hand what do you say to a ride on horseback this morning i readily accepted the suggestion ordered the horses put on my habit and away we went the roads were fine and we took a long ride as we were returning home we stopped often to admire the scenery and perchance each other when walking slowly through a beautiful grove he laid his hand on the horn of the saddle and to my surprise made one of those charming revelations of human feeling which brave knights have always found eloquent words to utter and to which fair ladies have always listened with mingled emotions of pleasure and astonishment one outcome of those glorious days of october eighteen thirty nine was a marriage in johnstown the tenth of may eighteen forty and a voyage to the old world six weeks of that charming autumn ending in the indian summer with its peculiarly hazy atmosphere i lingered in peterborough it seems in retrospect like a beautiful dream a succession of guests was constantly coming and going and i still remember the daily drives over those grand old hills crowned with trees now gorgeous in rich colors the more charming because we knew the time was short before the cold winds of november would change all the early setting sun warned us that the shortening days must soon end our twilight drives and the moonlight nights were too chilly to linger long in the rustic arbors or shady nooks outside with the peculiar charm of this season of the year there is always a touch of sadness in nature and it seemed doubly so to me as my engagement was not one of unmixed joy and satisfaction among all conservative families there was a strong aversion to abolitionists and the whole anti-slavery movement alone with cousin garrett in his library he warned me in deep solemn tones while strongly eulogizing my lover that my father would never consent to my marriage with an abolitionist he felt in duty bound as my engagement had occurred under his roof to free himself from all responsibility by giving me a long dissertation on love friendship marriage and all the pitfalls for the unwary who without due consideration formed matrimonial relations the general principles laid down in this interview did not strike my youthful mind so forcibly as the suggestion that it was better to announce my engagement by letter than to wait until i returned home as thus i might draw the hottest fire while still in safe harbor where cousin garrett could help me defend the weak points in my position so I lingered at Peterborough to prolong the dream of happiness, 
and postpone the conflict I feared to meet. But the judge understood the advantage of our position as well as we did, and wasted no ammunition on us. Being even more indignant at my cousin than at me, he quietly waited until I returned home, when I passed through the ordeal of another interview, with another dissertation on domestic relations from a financial standpoint. These were two of the most bewildering interviews I ever had. They succeeded in making me feel that the step I proposed to take was the most momentous and far-reaching in its consequences of any in this mortal life. Heretofore my apprehensions had all been of death and eternity. Now life itself was filled with fears and anxiety as to the possibilities of the future. Thus these two noble men, who would have done anything for my happiness, actually overweighted my conscience and turned the sweetest dream of my life into a tragedy. How little strong men, with their logic, sophistry, and hypothetical examples, appreciate the violence they inflict on the tender sensibilities of a woman's heart in trying to subjugate her to their will! The love of protecting too often degenerates into downright tyranny. Fortunately, all these somber pictures of a possible future were thrown into the background by the tender missives every post brought me, in which the brilliant word-painting of one of the most eloquent pens of this generation made the future for us both as bright and beautiful as spring with her verdure and blossoms of promise. However, many things were always transpiring at Peterborough to turn one's thoughts and rouse new interest in humanity at large. One day, as a bevy of us girls were singing and chattering in the parlor, Cousin Garrett entered, and in mysterious tones said, I have a most important secret to tell you, which you must keep to yourselves religiously for twenty-four hours. We readily pledged ourselves in the most solemn manner individually and collectively. Now, he said, follow me to the third story. This we did, wondering what the secret could be. At last, opening a door, he ushered us into a large room, in the center of which sat a beautiful quadroon girl, about eighteen years of age. Addressing her, he said, Harriet, I have brought all my young cousins to see you. I want you to make good abolitionists of them by telling them the history of your life, what you have seen and suffered in slavery. Turning to us, he said, Harriet has just escaped from her master, who is visiting in Syracuse, and is on her way to Canada. She will start this evening, and you may never have another opportunity of seeing a slave girl face to face, so ask her all you care to know of the system of slavery. For two hours we listened to the sad story of her childhood and youth, separated from all her family and sold for her beauty in a New Orleans market when but fourteen years of age. The details of her story I need not repeat. The fate of such girls is too well known to need rehearsal. We all wept together as she talked, and when Cousin Garrett returned to summon us away, we needed no further education to make us earnest abolitionists. Dressed as a Quakeress, Harriet started at twilight with one of Mr. Smith's faithful clerks in a carriage for Oswego, there to cross the lake to Canada. 
the next day her master and the marshals from syracuse were on her track in peterborough and traced her to mr smith's premises he was quite gracious in receiving them and while assuring them that there was no slave there he said that they were at liberty to make a thorough search of the house and grounds he invited them to stay and dine and kept them talking as long as possible as every hour helped harriet to get beyond their reach for although she had eighteen hours the start of them yet we feared some accident might have delayed her the master was evidently a gentleman for on mr smith's assurance that harriet was not there he made no search feeling that they could not do so without appearing to doubt his word he was evidently surprised to find an abolitionist so courteous and affable and it was interesting to hear them in conversation at dinner calmly discussing the problem of slavery while public sentiment was at white heat on the question they shook hands warmly at parting and expressed an equal interest in the final adjustment of that national difficulty in due time the clerk returned with good news that harriet was safe with friends in a good situation in canada mr smith then published an open letter to the master in the new york tribune saying quote, that he would no doubt rejoice to know that his slave harriet in whose fate he felt so deep an interest was now a free woman safe under the shadow of the british throne i had the honor of entertaining her under my roof sending her in my carriage to lake ontario just eighteen hours before your arrival hence my willingness to have you search my premises Unquote. like the varied combinations of the kaleidoscope the scenes in our social life at peterborough were continually changing from grave to gay some years later we had a most hilarious occasion at the marriage of mary cochran sister of general john cochran to chapman biddle of philadelphia the festivities which were kept up for three days involved most elaborate preparations for breakfast dinners etc there being no delmonicos in that remote part of the country it was decided in family council that we had sufficient culinary talent under the roof to prepare the entire menu of substantials and delicacies from soup and salmon to cakes and creams so gifted ladies and gentlemen were impressed into the service the fitzhughes all had a natural talent for cooking and chief among them was isabella wife of a naval officer lieutenant swift of geneva who had made a profound study of all the authorities from archistratus a poet in syracuse the most famous cook among the greeks down to our own miss leslie accordingly she was elected manager of the occasion and to each one was assigned the specialty in which she claimed to excel those who had no specialty were assistants to those who had in this humble office assistant at large i labored throughout cooking is a high art a wise egyptian said long ago quote, the degree of taste and skill manifested by a nation in the preparation of food may be regarded as to a very considerable extent proportioned to its culture and refinement Unquote. in early times men only were deemed capable of handling fire whether at the altar or the hearthstone we read in the scriptures that Abraham prepared cakes of fine meal and a calf tender and good which with butter and milk he set before the three angels in the plains of Mamre. We are told too of the chief butler and chief baker as officers in the household of King Pharaoh. 
I would like to call the attention of my readers to the dignity of this profession, which some young women affect to despise. The fact that angels eat shows that we may be called upon in the next sphere to cook even for cherubim and seraphim. How important, then, to cultivate one's gifts in that direction! With such facts before us, we stirred and pounded, whipped and ground, coaxed the delicate meats from crabs and lobsters and the succulent peas from the pods, and grated corn and coconut with the same cheerfulness and devotion that we played Mendelssohn's songs without words on the piano, the Spanish fandango on our guitars, or danced the minuet, polka, lancers, or Virginia reel. During the day of the wedding, every stagecoach was crowded with guests from the north, south, east, and west, and as the twilight deepened, the carriages began to roll in with neighbors and friends living at short distances until the house and grounds were full. A son of Bishop Cox, who married the tall and stately sister of Roscoe Conkling, performed the ceremony. The beautiful young bride was given away by her uncle Garrett. The congratulations, the feast, and all went off with fitting decorum in the usual way. The best proof of the excellence of our viands was that they were all speedily swept from mortal view, and every housewife wanted a recipe for something. As the grand dinner was to come off the next day, our thoughts now turned in that direction. The responsibility rested heavily on the heads of the chief actors, and they reported troubled dreams and unduly early rising. Dear Belle Swift was up in season, and her white soup stood serenely in a tin pan on an upper shelf before the town clock struck seven. If it had not taken that position so early, it might have been incorporated with higher forms of life than that into which it eventually fell. Another artist was also on the wing early, and in pursuit of a tin pan in which to hide her precious compound, she unwittingly seized this one, and the rich white soup rolled down her raven locks like the oil on Aaron's beard, and enveloped her in a veil of filmy whiteness. I heard the splash and the exclamation of surprise, and entered the butler's pantry just in time to see the heiress of the Smith estate standing like a statue, tin pan in hand, soup in her curls, her eyebrows and eyelashes, collar, cuffs, and morning dress saturated, and Belle at a little distance looking at her and the soup on the floor with surprise and disgust depicted on every feature. The tableau was inexpressibly comical, and I could not help laughing outright, whereupon Belle turned on me and with indignant tone said, If you had been up since four o'clock making that soup, you would not stand there like a laughing monkey without the least feeling of pity. Poor Lizzie was very sorry, and would have shed tears, but they could not penetrate that film of soup. I tried to apologize, but could only laugh the more when I saw Belle crying, and Lizzie standing as if hoping that the soup might be scraped off her and gathered from the floor and made to do duty on the occasion. After breakfast, ladies and gentlemen, alike in white aprons, crowded into the dining room and kitchen, each to perform the allotted task. George Biddle of Philadelphia and John B. Miller of Utica, in holiday spirits, were irrepressible, everywhere at the same moment, helping or hindering as the case may be. Dear Belle, having only partially recovered from the white soup catastrophe, called Mr. Biddle to hold the ice-cream freezer while she poured in the luscious compound she had just prepared. He held it up without resting it on anything, while Belle slowly poured in the cream, 
as the freezer had no indentations round the top or rim to brace the thumbs and fingers when it grew suddenly heavier his hand slipped and down went the whole thing spattering poor bell and spoiling a beautiful pair of gaiters in which as she had very pretty feet she took a laudable pride in another corner sat wealthia bacchus grating some coconut while struggling in that operation john miller feeling hilarious was annoying her in divers ways at length she drew the grater across his nose gently as she intended but alas she took the skin off and john's beauty for the remainder of the festivities was marred with a black patch on that prominent feature one can readily imagine the fun that must have transpired where so many amateur cooks were at work round one table with all manner of culinary tools and ingredients as assistant at large i was summoned to the cellar where mrs cornelia barclay of new york was evolving from a pan of flour and water that miracle in the pie department called puff paste this it seems can only be accomplished where the thermometer is below forty and near a refrigerator where the compound can be kept cold until ready to be popped into the oven no jokes or nonsense here with queenly dignity the flour and water were gently compressed here one hand must not know what the other doeth bits of butter must be so deftly introduced that even the rolling pin may be unconscious of its work as the artist gave the last touch to an exquisite lemon pie with a mingled expression of pride and satisfaction on her classic features she ordered me to bear it to the oven in the transit i met madame bell don't let that fall she said sneeringly Fortunately, I did not, and returned in triumph to transport another. I was then summoned to a consultation with the Committee on Toasts, consisting of James Cochran, John Miller, and myself. Mr. Miller had one for each guest already written, all of which we accepted and pronounced very good. Strange to say, a most excellent dinner emerged from all this uproar and confusion. The table, with its silver, china, flowers, and rich viands, the guests in satins, velvets, jewels, soft laces, and bright cravats, together reflecting all the colors of the prism, looked as beautiful as the rainbow after a thunderstorm. Twenty years ago I made my last sad visit to that spot, so rich with pleasant memories of bygone days. A few relatives and family friends gathered there to pay the last tokens of respect to our noble cousin. It was on one of the coldest days of grey December that we laid him in the frozen earth to be seen no more. He died from a stroke of apoplexy in New York City at the home of his niece, Mrs. Ellen Cochran Walter, whose mother was Mr. Smith's only sister. The journey from New York to Peterborough was cold and dreary, and climbing the hills from Canastota in an open sleigh, nine hundred feet above the valley, with the thermometer below zero before sunrise, made all nature look as somber as the sad errand on which we came. Outside the mansion everything in its wintry garb was cold and still, and all within was silent as the grave. The central figure, the light and joy of that home had vanished forever. He who had welcomed us on that threshold for half a century would welcome us no more. We did what we could to dissipate the gloom that settled on us all. We did not intensify our grief by darkening the house and covering ourselves with black crape, 
but wore our accustomed dresses of chastened colors, and opened all the blinds that the glad sunshine might stream in. We hung the apartment where the casket stood, with wreaths of evergreens, and overhead we wove his favorite mottoes in living letters. Equal rights for all. Rescue Cuba now! The religious services were short and simple. The Unitarian clergyman from Syracuse made a few remarks. The children from the orphan asylum, in which he was deeply interested, sang an appropriate hymn, and around the grave stood representatives of the Biddles, the Dixwells, the Sedgwicks, the Barclays, and Stantons, and three generations of his immediate family. With a few appropriate words from General John Cochran, we left our beloved kinsman alone in his last resting place. Two months later, on his birthday, his wife, Anne Carroll Fitzhugh, passed away and was laid by his side. Theirs was a remarkably happy union of over half a century, and they were soon reunited in the life eternal. End of chapter 4 This recording is in the public domain.